The machines, they may seem infallible, that their errors, they can be terrible. A missed cancer, a false positive too, the consequences dire and askew. And then it ends, for the stakes are high and the risks real in the field of pathology. Let us not seal our fate with machines, but with our own eyes and judgment and expertise that never dies. So I think it's ending on a word of hope. Welcome to the People of Pathology podcast. I'm Dennis Strank. On this podcast, we explore pathology, laboratory medicine, and forensic science. There's a lot of potential for the use of AI in medicine and in pathology in particular, and of course we heard a lot about this. But are there also potential downsides, and how should we address these before we start using AI in everyday practice? My guest today is Dr. Richard Levinson, and we're going to talk about how to correct some of the issues with AI that could affect not only patients, but also the pathologists that are using it. And we'll also look at his work in slide-free imaging and the potential for this technique to revolutionize pathology. All right, here's Dr. Richard Levinson. If we can go back to what your sort of first exposure was to pathology, I guess, it, during medical school, can, can you tell me about that? And then I'd like to get into like how you kind of figured out that pathology was the field for you. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> I have actually good answers for that. Um, okay. As you probably know, pathology is relatively low on the list of sort of career choices for medical students, and it's dropping. Um, yeah. I was there at University of Michigan, where at least we had a fighting chance, or the field had a fighting chance, because a whole semester was uh, dedicated to pathology as a separate course, and the person who taught it was really charismatic. So we actually, you know, thought well of it. But most people still didn't want to go in it. And I was there in an era where the smart kids all went into internal medicine. And so without, you know, sort of thinking about it deeply, I was going to go into internal medicine as well without any real enthusiasm for it. It's just what you did. And then one of my uh, colleagues who went on to, I mean, fellow medical students at the time, uh, who went on to a very distinguished career at uh, NIH in pathology, uh, pointed out to me that Pathology really made a lot of sense, especially for people with research, basic research interests. This sounded strange to me as I'd actually flunked the pathology final, although I just scraped by passing the course because of the credit from the quizzes along the way. I got a 69, passing score was 70. And my excuse was oh. that um, I'd had five days or nights of total insomnia during exam period then, and I just really was not functional. Um, and he pointed out that um, it's really good for research. For one thing, it, it, it opens the door to many different fields. If you go into dermatology, you have to, you're stuck with dermatology. Whereas pathology, you can study you know, sort of anything uh, of interest. Then he said that if you wanted a research lab, you could actually have your, be, do your clinical service on the autopsy service, which had all kinds of benefits. Usually it meant sort of 20% time commitment. Uh, it was during the day only if, if someone died during the night, they didn't call you in. They just put them in the cold box and brought you in the next day. And the same is true over weekends. So nice lifestyle. And then, um, you know, the rest of the time you could you could work in your lab. And uh, that actually made sense to me. And interestingly enough, um, I had a colleague, a friend, still a, still a friend from way back then, uh, who was uh, another medical student, and she was also going into initially going into clinical medicine, and uh, she was virtually suicidal. She just couldn't 
do it. She was crying every night, had no idea what to do. And I told her about pathology and she sort of looked at it again and jumped ship and became a pathologist. And she said, you know, you essentially, you saved my life because, you know, this is perfect for me. I had a, and she had a great career. And I tell people that hers was the only life I saved in medical school. Um, <laughs> okay. So it's like a good that. story. <laughs> True story. Uh, and we share a birthday and I just got a card from her. So uh, we're still, still hanging around together. Basically it was a great place to go for people who have, you know, broad research interests uh, and a desire not to um, get really um, hung up on, uh, you know, overall overwhelming clinical responsibilities. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, as I'll, I can explain later, I did go into an auto the autopsy service. And in fact, in my entire career, I tell people I'm privileged because at no time uh, was any patient ever at risk. Okay. I like it. So, so then you, going into pathology, like you never had any doubts about that you'd pick the right uh, specialty. It was, you went into pathology and that was, and you were sure yeah. right away. Uh, I mean, it, and you know, pathology as a discipline, it, I keep looking for the source of this quote. I didn't make it up, but I can't find it, which was uh, either it was the autopsy or pathology is the jewel in the crown of medicine. And basically sort of most of what we know about clinical medicine today comes from insights derived from first the autopsy and then more more tissue-based analyses. Uh, mm -hmm. And it really is profoundly uh, focused on, you know, the expression of disease and the mechanisms of disease at a very basic level that you don't necessarily get in uh, head and neck surgery, for example, not, not to pick on one particular field, but just, you know, that those are a different set of skills uh, that don't necessarily engage the same parts of the brain. Take me from that, from getting into pathology and then uh, eventually into digital and computational pathology. How, how did that happen? Well, that's a good question. Um, and I got into it very, very early. Uh, and it happened because I ended up uh, first before before ending up at my um, sort of first major academic appointment. I spent five years at the University of Rochester. Uh, in an endocrinology department, uh, working with a, a, a great scientist called Don Young, who who had developed um, a technology called giant two-dimensional gel electrophoresis. And are you familiar with what two D gels are? Uh, a little bit, yeah. Back back in my college days, I, I, I guess, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, back then it was one of the sort of early ways of looking at many, many things at once. Uh, 2D gels are really sort of gel electrophoresis, but run in two dimensions uh, um, based on charge in one dimension and molecular weight in the other. So you could take a protein mixture and actually separate them out into hundreds of spots. Or in Don's lab, with the giant gels, thousands of spots. And what we were doing was looking at, but we, were, we weren't doing that to develop the technology. We were using that to understand cell biology and and what proteins were expressed after uh, treatment of cells with growth factors, for example. And you would take a, have, have cells grown in tissue culture and they become confluent and quiet. Then you add some growth factor like fibroblast growth factor to them and they, they turn on. And what you do is you can label them with an amino and a radioactive amino acid for a few hours uh, and see what new proteins they make. Then you, you dissolve them up and run them on a 2D gel. And on these gels, you would see literally thousands of little gray spots because you do autoradiography. And we literally used chest X-ray film 
to give you an idea of how big the gels were to do the exposure. And, and then you run them through the, the uh, uh, X-ray machine and um, see all, all the little, uh, little dark spots. Uh, and ev- every spot is a different protein or a protein uh, variant. Um, but we had no way of quantitating it. We would just look at it and maybe draw circles on, on, on the gray spots uh, and uh, describe it that way. And so I actually came up with an idea that I said what we needed was a densitometer, but there was no densitometer that could manage uh, a, a something as big as a chest X-ray film. So I invented something I called a pensitometer, which was a handheld little thing that would measure the density of a spot as you scrubbed over individual spots, which you chose. And then um, basically with my my boss's help, uh, figured out a way of how to use a Commodore 64 computer, which a few of your audience might remember. <laughs> this was even <laughs> before the, the Apple computer. Uh, sure, yeah. Plan. And uh, actually take the, the signal from the pensitometer, go into the analog game port, because this was not a science computer, uh, and that would create a digital signal. And then you would quantitate that and actually get real, uh, honest to goodness, um, uh, dens- density measurements for all the spots of interest. And it actually worked. And we got a couple of J- uh, Journal of Cell Biology, uh, no, Journal of Biological Chemistry papers out of it. Um, so it worked. Uh, and that really was, in a sense, digital imaging. In other words, we were taking an analog signal, turning it to digital and getting math out of it. It was also spatially oriented, although we weren't taking actual photographs of the gel. Of course, that's this is you know completely, you know, child's play now. Uh, but it was really quite fun and, and uh, remarkable doing that. And that's the only time I actually spent whole nights in the lab because I couldn't tear myself away from the computer. So uh, I went from there to Duke University, where indeed I uh, became an assistant professor uh, and indeed uh, served on the autopsy service uh, and had my own lab uh, and continued working on imaging and image analysis now on these 2D gels. Uh, And that really didn't go very well or go very far. But fortunately, someone else in the department was working on confocal microscopy, which back then was also a brand new thing. You know, I'm sure your audience knows about it, but it was a way to um, get high resolution images, uh, very depth resolved on cells and tissues. And it was really sort of brand new as a general field, but also completely unexplored in pathology. And I did manage to get a I was a proud middle author on a, on a paper on back then in the 80s uh, on the role of potential role of confocal microscopy in clinical histology. And, and nothing came of that paper, but I think it was really uh, early in the field. Yeah, and then um, my actual my time at uh, it's a funny story. My time at Duke didn't end well. There was a big bunch of of layoffs. Uh, the, the the university was undergoing some fiscal constraints, and I my grant uh, wasn't renewed. And suddenly the department thought that uh, I was more trouble than I was worth, <laughs> and so they literally said we have. Bad news, good, uh, bad news and worse news for you when I got called into the vice chair's office and I played along and said, okay, so what's the bad news? He said, well, um, your salary next year goes to 80% of what you're making now. I said, and the worst news? He says, well, the, after, after that year, it goes to zero. So that was how I was laid off, if you will. <laughs> wow. Talk about, talk about human skills. Um, right. And. And I thought, well, my career in research was over. I obviously failed. Uh, And although I was board certified as a pathologist, I hadn't done any for a while. And I said, well, what if I go back into the department uh, as a first year resident again, 
and get trained in, in clinical pathology, uh, in anatomic pathology. And they actually let me do this. It was amazing. I went from assistant professor in the department to first year resident in the department. And I'm only telling you all this because somebody among my fellow residents pointed to an article uh, or an, actually an advertisement in Science Magazine showing the use of spectral imaging for uh, analysis of, of uh, cytology smears. And for some reason, that really spoke to me. Uh, and so instead of finishing the year uh, as a first-year resident again, I contacted the company responsible for doing that and actually got a job and joined them uh, as, a, uh, as a scientist. Uh, the company was called Applied Spectral Imaging, which is still, still in existence. I moved to Carnegie Mellon University to work with them on that. And then what happened along the way, because they were sort of active in the optics community, I began to go to optics conferences and, in fact, started to organize conferences for SPIE and really kind of fit into a whole new, you know, sort of discipline and uh, groups. Um, so I've been sort of active in the optics world as well as in the pathology world. And that's been really great. Let me let me inter interrupt you with a question sure. real quick. Sorry. Um, was it unusual at that time for a pathologist to be involved in the optics world? It still is. Okay. Um, I just last year, the year before, actually was elected a fellow uh, to SPIE, which is one of their, you know, sort of high honors. And out of 70 fellows that year, there were two MDs. So, it, oh, wow. Yes. That's so surprising. It's, okay. it's a rare thing. Okay. All right. So I interrupted your story. Go no, ahead. Go I ahead. don't go know on. what I was saying. <laughs> um, so uh, I was with applied spectral imaging working on one particular technology for spectral imaging um, for like three years. And then uh, I became aware of another company called Cambridge Research and Instrumentation known as CRI, which was in Boston, who had developed a completely different technique based on liquid crystal tunable filters, um, which basically uh, is what it sounds like, if you will. Um, you're familiar with sort of just regular optical filters that are that are sensitive or will pass a certain wavelength of light. You can have a green filter, a red filter, a blue filter, right? And in in, oh, uh, yeah. in fluorescence imaging, you switch between different filters and you take you know you you can image different uh, fluorescent molecules that way. Well, liquid crystal tunable filters is actually a filter that you can dial any wavelength you want in, and it works really nicely. So you just put one of these filters in front of a camera, and you can. You can dial in. Um, uh, you can you can sort of take take images at uh, 500 nanometers, 510, 520, 530, 540, etc., and develop a multispectral data set in, instead of just a monochrome, which is sort of usual for fluorescence or even RGB. And that was really exciting, and it enabled all kinds of things. Um, actually, actually uh, helped. Uh, I became vice president for research there eventually. Uh, and uh, actually named a couple of their products, the multispectral imaging box that was, you know, productized. Uh, I called nuance, which had double meaning because, of course, nuance means small differences. But new also is the Greek symbol for frequency, which is the inverse of wavelength. So it's my own little joke. Okay. Uh, and then okay. we had a we did the same thing only for small animal imaging for looking at mice and other things in a box, but also using multispectral. And uh, I call that Maestro for mice. Get it? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I like and, it. Clever. And, well, but not clever enough because I was abroad, some, abroad somewhere and an Italian came up and says, uh, you know, I like your instrument, but why did you call it Maestro? So he didn't, he didn't get it. <laughs> okay. I see. 
So um, and that was really good because I, I got an opportunity to work on the hardware and the software reagents, application areas. And actually, even then, like almost 20 years ago, I started to implement machine learning software um, to, to analyze the images. So okay. early Very, on. Very uh, ahead of its time. Indeed. And what's nice about this whole sort of long story is that unlike many things one does early that kind of fall off the cliff later, uh, the, the company itself was sold to Perkin Elmer. Uh, and then the, that particular technology uh, ended up in a company that's still very active, Akoya Biosciences, which uh, is playing a big role in the world of spatial imaging, spatial multiomics, spatial transcript, yes. that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And so the, the actual hardware in those boxes uh, and even the uh, machine learning software, some of it is still dates back to when I was working on it at CRI. So it's nice to see that it lives. Right. So that's interesting. Oh. Yeah. So this brings us then now to your current role, or part of your current role is vice chair for strategic technology. Okay. All right. So so tell me about this. What does this mean? Well, it means what I want it to mean, which is great. Um, but okay. what you didn't ask because you didn't know how this happened was how did how do I go from being a vice president for research at a small company to being uh, at UC Davis as a yeah. professor. Okay. And um, this is not something I would suggest anyone sort of plan on because I was just working in my bedroom, uh, actually in my consulting gig at that time. And I got a phone call saying, uh, is this Richard Levinson? I said, yes, it is. And the person said, well, would you like to be a professor at UC Davis? And I said, I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> And it actually happened. Uh, and magically, I was able to go to assistant professor at Duke to full professor at UC Davis without ever being an associate professor and all that, you know, okay. all that nonsense wow. in between. So uh, I was pretty darn lucky. Um, and I don't think it's a career path you can plan on. So what is uh, uh, vice chair for strategic technologies? It was a title invented for me because I think they didn't know what to do with me. And they originally wanted me for vice chair for research, but I, I, I'm glad that didn't happen because that has some very specific uh, uh, duties that uh, I'm just as happy not not to have to deal with. I'm actually right now the um, uh, interim uh, chair for research at UC Davis because the real chair is on uh, is is doing a sabbatical, and so far it has largely involved me signing people's requests for time off. So. I don't, okay. need to do I don't need to do that full time. Right. I mean, what should it mean or what I, what I should be doing for it uh, is, uh, first of all, I help technologies in our laboratory. And I think they're strategic, as we might get to later. Then to be sort of actually a contributor to the department, it shouldn't just happen in my lab, but it should involve uh, investigators both in the department and in neighboring fields like neurosurgery, neuroradiology, head and neck surgery, and so on all all the groups that that could benefit for the kinds of things that we're working on, it's really important to bring them in early and uh, get there, basically help them and also get them to help us uh, try to figure out what we're doing. And then um, I also spun out a couple of companies myself from our lab. And that's a, I guess that doesn't really fall under, I guess that falls under strategic technologies because if, the, it, the whole thing just lives in our laboratory. And by the way, I should mention that, that this was all done in close collaboration with a postdoc in my lab who is now uh, 
you know, got his own lab and is now an uh, adjunct assistant professor at UC Davis. So that's a, a nice success story. Uh, is that um, two companies have spun out of what we're doing, and that's really how to make the technology strategic. Is that way they can presumably get out into the world and and help real people in real places. And then what I'd like to do is also just work with faculty members um, to generate synergies between the other, you know, the, the, the other companies in the field that I'm aware of, not our own technologies and what they do and try to make look for, uh, you know, real ways to bring them together and combine their technology with our academic expertise and, and also the, the uh, tissues that we have as a department. So those okay. are, it's, it's all, I would say, a work in progress. Okay, I see. That makes sense. Now, you, you mentioned these a couple of companies that have spun up, mm-hmm. out of this. Is that how you got involved in uh, slide-free imaging? Well, I mean, it's the other way around. We developed the slide-free imaging, and, and then the companies, you know, it looked so promising that uh, we were able to uh, file patents and raise a little bit of money, uh, and we have, you know, a, sort of a real company infrastructure with a, <laughs> a CEO and, and you know, all of, all of the uh, the people – uh, to do everything except actually build the boxes. And so we're, we are, uh, as I said, uh, in Series A now trying to raise some serious dollars to, to get to the next step. So let's talk about slide-free imaging for, for a little bit. Sure. because All right. Yeah, so tell me about this, because it seems like if I kind of sit and think about it, it, it makes a lot of sense and it would it seems like it would be very efficient. But let's let, let's kind of talk about just like why, why is there a sure. need for, for well, this? You know, I... I think people realize that pathology is, to be kind, a mature field, at least in in daily practice. Uh, There are lots of people doing wonderful stuff uh, on the kind of bleeding edge, uh, but none of that is really filtered into the practice of the field at large yet. Uh, And I just wanted to distinguish between um, what we're doing and digital pathology, which is sort of thought to be the next big thing in pathology. But it's... um, to me, and uh, at least functionally, it's kind of like the difference between going from uh, uh, carburetors to fuel injection in uh, uh, in in the, my my motor. Um, it doesn't change fundamentally what's going on. It does increase the speed and efficiency, but at the end of the day, apart from the potential for uh, using artificial intelligence or, or just basically uh, image analysis on pathology specimens uh, or slides. Uh, it doesn't change the uh, the basic premise, which is and and workflow. It in fact it adds to the workflow, and the workflow currently, for as as I'm sure all of your listeners realize, uh, is that you have uh, apart from frozen sections, which are are have their unique benefits and and, and difficulties. Uh, to get a slide out of a piece of tissue involves uh, quite a bit of work, at least four hours, usually overnight, probably over a weekend or or even over weeks, depending on how close the histology lab is to the to the tissue being uh, being accessed um, with formaldehyde and paraffin and slicing and deparaffinizing and staining and and dehydrating and cover slipping and labeling and finally the slide gets to a pathologist after it dries uh, and that can take hours. We're used to it. That seems to be the way things are. But if you could go right from a piece of tissue to an image that's as good as, or in some cases better than, what we see with, with a, on a standard slide in five minutes, that obviously changes the equation. And that's sort of, in essence, what we're talking about. Okay. So it's it's very much about the speed 
and having the speed while also keeping the quality and the cost down. Okay. Um, because you don't need, you can use a histo tech to, um, you still have to gross the tissue. In other words, you need to have a piece of tissue, a, a lump, uh, and then you need to uh, basically figure out where to cut it and which which face of the or your chunk of tissue has the informative stuff in it. Uh, uh, and then you position it, you know, so that's what you image. But you don't need a, a histo uh, technician or technologist to actually do the microtomy, the cutting which is also a very highly skilled and, and slow process, relatively slow process. So you can basically get, uh, you know, eliminate one person out of two in the, on the technical side uh, as you push the tissue through. And then it potentially could replace frozen sections because the images are actually better than frozens and the, the process is as fast as freezing. And so you can do that intraoperatively. That's amazing. Okay. Okay. And the same thing is it can be targeted to look at, at uh, core needle biopsies. Uh, same idea. Uh, you know, it's very, it's gentle. It's non, uh, what we do, I can describe it. Uh, it's, it's non-destructive. So even after you image it, it's still all there. If you put slides and, you know, if you put tissue in a block and then make slides, you're, you're, you're chewing up your specimen. Same is true with frozen, uh, uh, with frozen sections. By the time you get the image on the slide, you've already you may have lost half of the tissue at the bottom of the cryostat. Okay, so that's then it, doing it for core needle biopsies, you're talking about like uh, radiology procedures, then that's the, the exactly FNAs right. and things. Um, okay, and so that's pretty exciting, and we actually have um, two NIH grants that are just about to start NCI grants to basically do this for real, and one is really exciting. Uh, it's to do it in the country of Ghana. Really. Really. That, that how did that come about? Well, sort of by I don't know, <laughs> sort of by <laughs> chance. In that um, I knew it. I think that I was made aware that there was a, a uh, low resource setting grant opportunity, uh, and okay. then I I sort of found some some people who could help with that. And one of them was uh, Dan Milner uh, from the ASCP American Society sure. of Clinical yeah. Pathology. Uh, and he actually had existing uh, contacts with a very wonderful surgery group in Ghana, and one thing led to another. So, I mean, it was, we didn't say, oh, it has to be in Ghana. It turns out that that actually is a, a wonderful location um, uh, with uh, the right level of, of expertise uh, and also, you know, the right kind of challenges to make it a, a, a good thing to see if we can make things work there. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's interesting. I like the kind of global aspect to that. Oh, yeah. And it's yeah. also true for, um, you know, we have a lot of low resource settings. Uh, apparently, UC Davis is is making a big push to help uh, indigenous Native Americans uh, because they also have extreme uh, uh, medical resource scarcity. And if we could bring this to uh, reservations, it could be very helpful. Okay. Okay. I can see how that would work. Interesting. Interesting. All right. Now, now what about dual mode emission and transmission microscopy? Or I think in the paper I read, it was called duet. Now, That's all right. right. First of all, did, did you come up with the name duet? I did. Okay. But I have to tell that you seems... about the name I came up with beforehand, because the, the, okay. story, the story for duet was it was developed by uh, my colleague Farzad Faraduni. He's the guy who joined my lab and is now an assistant professor. Uh, and he was a physicist in a previous life and had uh, developed uh, all kinds of, of uh, cool technologies, 
including software, something called spectral phasers, which is a way of, of uh, using phaser-based mathematics to look at multispectral information. He, phasers had been around for a while, but he was the first to, to use it for spectral data and is, is widely cited for that. Um, and so he brought that, he, we tried to, uh, at his instigation, tried to develop um, a microscope that will actually capture phase-based information directly and so make a phaser-based microscope. And that we, we built it, but it didn't really work very well. But in the course of that, he took an image of an H&E stained slide in fluorescence, uh, as well as in bright field. And lo and behold, collagen popped out as a signal. And it makes sense. Collagen is a is a, a photonically active molecule. It's birefringent and it's also autofluorescent. And uh, it shows it sort of shows itself up when you image it in in just sort of standard fluorescence mode. And the the uh, the, the inspiration here is you could take an H and E stain slide and get exactly H and E information as you just you know scan it in bright field. And, and then uh, simultaneously scan it in fluorescence and you get both channels. And he showed me this and I didn't believe him. He showed me some more stuff and I said, okay, well, let's call it SCICAM, S-C-I-C-A-M, where S-C-I stands for Stupid Collagen Imager, because I didn't believe it. Uh, and we actually <laughs> called it SCICAM for a number of years. In fact, the software is still called SCICAM. But it turns out I finally went online and lo and behold, there's someone else was using that name for something else. Uh, okay. I came up with a bunch of different names, none of which I can share on this family channel. But finally, that's <laughs> um, <laughs> true. Uh, but but finally okay. um, came up with Duet, which is a wonderful name because it just, it's actually accurately descriptive. It's dual mode. In other words, bright field and fluorescence. Emission, which is fluorescence. Transmission, which is bright field. And it's Duet, which means we're doing it with, in two modes. So it's a, a very nice little name. And that's what it's called. So this is... Since you're talking about collagen, uh, the again in the paper that I read, you it was like replacing the trichrome stain. That's correct. Essentially, there are other yeah. alternative ways of seeing collagen. There's um, multi-photon microscopy, or, or rather, um, I'm blocking on the name of it. It'll come to me. But anyway, they're they're, they're laser-based approaches, uh, and there are and then um, uh, other fluorescent stains that, that highlight collagen. Um, and they all have their strengths and weaknesses. Um, but actually, if you compare Duet to Trichrome, it's actually superior because uh, for on sort of two reasons. One, Trichrome um, is a chemical stain, and it's a little bit sloppy. It it uh, it it sort of um, stains things that aren't collagen. Uh, and also, when it generates an image, it's just blue. Whereas if you look at it in Duet, different collagen deposits actually have different colors. And we have no idea what that means yet. It's just sort of a casual observation. But the point is that there's information there that we can presumably exploit uh, to, to make a better world. Is it, does this have the speed advantage as well? Is it faster than kind of the manual, or I guess it's sort of automated these days, trichrome stain? Well, yes. First of all, trichrome stain means that you have to make another slide. You actually physically make a, uh, another section. And then you have right, to send okay. it to the laboratory where it... You know, it takes, who knows, four hours of, of chemical staining to do, you know, extra cost, uh, extra labor. And here you have this, the H&E stain slide. You can actually get a trichrome without doing anything else <laughs> just by imaging it in fluorescence and, and potentially doing some math to, to emphasize the, the, the signals that you want to look at more closely. 
So again, it, it's it's sort of a, in parallel to the slide-free imaging, which I didn't even describe, which is called FIBI, which is fluorescence imitating bright field imaging, um, okay. where uh, you skip a lot of steps and 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 potentially get more information. Okay, that, that that makes a lot of sense. And just thinking about that, like you were saying earlier about replacing frozen sections. Now with this, then you could or maybe I'm getting way ahead of it, but potentially you could replace the frozen sections and actually have information you'd get from extra stains. You are absolutely correct. And for reasons that we don't understand, the duet signal seems to be even stronger on frozen sections than it is on H&E. The, the, the differences are, are greater. Um, Interesting. Because okay. the tissue has been treated differently. So it, it, it's entirely, and in fact, we're looking at that. We're working with a, uh, a scientist at uh, University of Florida and also at Johns Hopkins to um, basically use this to help guide um, transplantation choices and and, and uh, because you need to know what you're looking at and whether that organ is is of use for uh, transplantation and um, very often it 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 boils down to a frozen section in the middle of the night because that's that's when organs right. are available. And so to get better information and help pick better organs for transplantation, I think is, is a potential uh, potential win. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got faster information and more information. That Yeah. Yeah. That's the that, hope. That, that, that's like great potential. I, I like that a lot. Thank you. This is the People of Pathology podcast with our guest, Dr. Richard Levinson. We'll be right back. If you're trying to understand the ever-changing world of digital pathology and image analysis, there's a new course that can help you, Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis. Now, this course was created by Dr. Alexandra Zhurov, who you might remember from episode 53 of this podcast. She also writes the Digital Pathology Place blog and hosts the Digital Pathology Podcast. Pathology 101 for Tissue Image Analysis aims to bridge the gap between computer science and pathology and explains some of the complicated concepts in image analysis. You can sign up for this course by following the link in the show notes. LabVine is an interactive online learning platform where laboratory professionals learn, develop, and discover by sharing knowledge and building on each other's experience. The platform provides global access to internationally accredited laboratory-specific courses and other resources developed by lab specialists, like us, for the laboratory industry. LabVine is free to sign up, and you can use the link in the show notes to get started. Now back to Dr. Richard Levinson on the People of Pathology podcast. Okay, okay, All right, let's let's switch gears a little bit then. Uh, you mentioned AI a little bit uh, <laughs> ago. Now, so recently you co-authored a, an article about AI in pathology, and it was called AI in Pathology, What Could Possibly Go Wrong? <laughs> Which again, all right, now another good title. Did you did you come up with this yes, title? Yes, yes, I did. Okay, that seems to be your thing. <laughs> all right. So my impression of this article then is it's not necessarily against the use of AI, but that we should also consider what could be the potential downsides to it. Is, is that, am oh, I no, interpreting that correctly? And this okay. was designed to go into an AI special issue of seminars in diagnostic pathology. And I figured that all other eight articles or so are all going to be, you know, AI, wonderful, wonderful. And I thought it would be worthwhile yeah. having a paper that was a little bit slanted in the other direction just for balance. Uh, okay. So uh, you're right. It's uh, I'm not anti-AI, but I think that there are a lot of things that um, need to be thought about. 
And, you know, the paper was took a, a year or so to come into being. Uh, and an awful lot of the discussions have become very much in the public domain with chat GPT. And it's, it's sort of not, a, not as um, esoteric a question as it, as it used to be. But I think even so, some of the things that we in the paper haven't really been discussed much that I've seen elsewhere. Yeah, I agree. And like you said, most of the things you read about AI and pathology, they're all very pro AI and, you know, there is great potential there. That is true. Oh, yeah. Um, but, I, you know, one of the main points of this article uh, was the, the kind of unintentional bias that can come from AI models mm -hmm. and the several different kinds of bias I think are mentioned in the article. So can, can you talk about this? Sure. Well, it, it, um, there are all kinds of problems. For example, um, uh, people talk about ground truth and yet, First of all, there is no such thing as ground truth, and I, I, I started calling it mud truth <laughs> recently. Uh, or an alternative is, uh, you know, um, it's not data, it's dirta. Uh, because if you actually look at what's going on into the input input hopper, uh, the data can be extremely, just on its own merits, uh, very, very dirty, uh, uh, filled with mislabeling, you know, just way off kilter values. Um, and uh, that's well understood, although I did quote a uh, something that someone at, at UC Davis observed looking at a, at a burn uh, registry. And the question uh, that was uh, sort of to be filled out in one particular field was location of burn. And there are four answers that he quoted was, you know, my left arm, my right leg, the backyard, and Mexico. So you can see if that stuff gets fed into uh, an AI tool and, and you're going to get garbage out, uh, and it's going to be quite frightening. And you think, how could that possibly happen? Well, you know, the, the, it's very, very hard to curate data, and especially since the goal for a lot of these things is not to get 100 or 200 cases, but 10,000 or a million cases to go in the hopper, as as uh, Page AI has done coming out of um, uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. And uh, it becomes very much incumbent on on the people doing it to make sure the data going in is, is uh, high quality. And that's uh, generated a, a little understood um, field of low paid labor of, of people in other countries getting paid $2 an hour to curate the data that goes into AI models. So that's, that's something. Uh, and then of course, even if all of your data is perfectly calibrated and, and accurate, then you need to make sure that the data that you choose to put in your model actually reflects the population that you might apply it to. And, uh, you know, very yes. often you might have something that's developed at um, Harvard or Johns Hopkins filled with, uh, you know, sort of wealthy white people who are getting top of the line therapy. Uh, and then you get you develop a model and then you try to apply it in in Haiti <laughs> or, or somewhere else where the population is completely different, uh, both in terms of exposures and in terms of when they present, in, uh, is the disease early or late? Um, and so the answers actually will be wrong, just plain wrong, because they didn't match the input data with the population they're looking at. And that's another huge problem. And, um, you know, I could go on, but that's sort of part of the story. I, I was thinking about that because there are these big, uh, like data sets that you can use for different research thing. I forget the one of them. I forget the name of it, but, a and, and I wonder about ATCG. That might be it. Yeah. That might be it. Uh, but you, but you can, um, 
I wondered about that because it isn't representative of, like you said, the population where you are, right. you know, your particular hospital or whatever center you're, you're caring for. So that makes sense. And, and they've already shown it that, that, that breast cancer tools that work well on, on white populations don't work on, on black women, you know, because they have a, a, a molecularly different set of, of uh, lesions uh, and they behave differently. And so the software that works for one group doesn't work for another group. I mean, that sounds like a pretty important point to keep in mind, you know, Absolutely. when it comes to AI. Yeah. Okay. You know, another point in the article, and this is more about how it affects the pathologists who are using it. And you, you bring up two things, de-skilling, de-thrilling and burnout. <laughs> no, it's, yeah. Okay. It's de-skilling, de-thrilling and burnout. And, right. um, uh, so de-skilling has been, uh, it's not a term that we invented. Uh, and my, the, the, my, the other key author was Kei Nakagawa, uh, who is really key and, and key, that's his name, um, uh, in, in get pu- pulling this together. And we've been talking about this for a number of years now. But de-skilling is kind of obvious, and this happens when I try to uh, drive out of downtown Sacramento without my iPhone on. I can't do it. I, there's no way for me to get home because of I've completely lost all of my navigation skills because they they've been transplanted into my into my palm, right? Um, right. And the same is potentially true and seriously true uh, for uh, you know skilled pathologists who have a you know sort of a a, a um, Cliff's notes sitting right next to them at all time, uh, sort of telling telling him or her what to think about a particular lesion. And uh, eventually you just um, take the easy way home and begin to defer to the software. Uh, and it happens slowly, but it's inexorable. Uh, and this has happened uh, very clearly and demonstrably, for example, with pilots who have autopilots. And when things go seriously oh, yeah. wrong, they actually don't have the necessary skills to, to get the plane back on an even keel. You know, it's, it's problematic. And that's why there's a lot of emphasis on not having these make primary diagnoses, but only after the pathologist has ruled, uh, or at least to come up with a preliminary diagnosis, you then click the, what, what does the AI think uh, and uh, deal with any discrepancies at that point. So theoretically you wouldn't be de-skilled then, but it's a real problem and I guarantee you it will occur. Mm-hmm. Okay. De- de-thrilling is a, something that I haven't seen discussed before. Uh, and basically, people, a lot of people went into pathology because they like the challenge. They like the trying to figure out problems and, and uh, you know, having insights and, and key, key uh, you know, sort of saying, well, I mean, I, I thought about the first top three or four on my list, but it still could be, you know, number five, six or seven. Um, and it's exciting, especially if they can figure something out and help a patient. Uh, and if you have the software doing all of that and your only role is to hit the checkbox saying, agree, 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 it's going to be much more uh, like a checkout clerk at some retail store than a pathologist. And I think it'll take away the fun. And then there's the flip okay. side, which is pathology is hard. It, it wears on you. And if you could imagine a world where the AI took all of the easy cases and left you only the hard cases... And in fact, you you don't have enough pathologists anyway. So you spend your eight hours a hundred percent on on hard cases all day. That's going to hurt as well. And everybody needs some downtime. 
Okay, that makes sense. I would, it would, uh, yeah, that leads to the burnout. That would be very tiring to be, um, and almost, I mean, I guess if these are like cancer cases or something, it would be almost depressing, I guess, in a way, if that's the only thing you look at all day long. Yes. I mean, give me an appendectomy, please. <laughs> right. Sure. Okay. Those are interesting points and definitely worth thinking about when we're, we're talking about AI and pathology. So that's, those, those are good to bring up and, and to talk about. Thank you. So at the end of the article, I wanted to talk about this because you end with a poem that was generated by AI in the style of Edgar Allan Poe. Yes. And it's actually, even, even though it's, it's, it's done by AI, it's a pretty accurate summary of the main points of, of the article. Uh, how did you come up with the idea to do this? Um, I can't help myself. <laughs> okay. It just, it just occurred to me. And, you know, people are doing this all the time. It was sort of new and novel then, but now everybody is writing poems um, sure. with ChatGPT. I just had to talk about the horrors of California's Central Valley. And what's interesting about the poems that that I've managed to generate is they do sort of, even if you give them a dark note to go on, they seem to be styled to end on a cheerful note. And I think that's what happened with... Um, that's what happened with my Horrors of Central Valley poem. But it also happened with this chat GPT was asked about the impact of AI on pathology. Uh, I could read uh, a few lines from it if you thought that would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, it, it, it starts, um, I'll read the first and last set of four lines. So the question was, AI and pathology, what could go wrong? And chat GPT said, the machines, they may seem infallible, but their errors, they can be terrible. A missed cancer, a false positive too, the consequences dire and askew. And then it ends, for the stakes are high and the risks real in the field of pathology. Let us not seal our fate with machines, but with our own eyes and judgment and expertise that never dies. So I think it's ending on a word of hope. Yes, absolutely. I like it. Okay. Uh, Dr. Levinson, this has been a very interesting conversation. I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Uh, Some fascinating things you're working on. So uh, Dr. Richard Levinson, thank you very much. It was my pleasure. Thank you. If you're looking for another episode of the People of Pathology podcast to check out after this one, here's a clip from my interview with Dr. Fred Bozeman as we talk about pathology as a dynamic field. But I think it's very important that uh, the younger, younger generation um, uh, of, of pathologists, as, as early as possible, gets involved in uh, organizational matter uh, at, the, in, at the department level, but also at the level of, of your the professional societies. If you look at the, uh, the, the demographics of uh, pathologists in, in the US or in the Netherlands, uh, it's, it's pretty similar. I mean, but <laughs> more than, more than 50% is below the age of 45, whereas uh, most of the, the, the members of committees uh, tend to be much older. And I think it's important that the younger age bracket is well represented in, in these structures uh, because they bear a large part of the responsibility for our daily work. You can hear the rest of my conversation with Dr. Fred Bozeman in episode 131. Great big thanks to Dr. Richard Levinson. Now, the work that he's doing with slide-free imaging, much of it is a bit above my knowledge level, but I do enjoy learning about these things. And really, technologies like this are probably going to be the future of the pathology field. So it's important to start learning about them as early as you can. And along with that, you know, learning about AI 
is important as well. And like he said in the interview, Dr. Levinson is not against the use of AI, but there are some important considerations to think about and to try to come up with some solutions. And a lot of these things are things that I never would have thought of. So again, it's interesting for me to have these conversations. And I appreciate Dr. Levinson taking the time to do that. As always, I'll have links in the show notes to everything that we talked about today. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at People of Path, or just connect with me on LinkedIn. Thank you for continuing to share the show with others. Together, let's inspire the next generation of pathologists and laboratory professionals. This show is a member of Health Podcast Network, which connects listeners with conversations and stories about health, care, and well-being. You can find a link in the show notes to Health Podcast Network. And while you're there, check out some of their other interesting podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Dennis Strank, and I'll talk to you next time on the People of Pathology podcast.